Welcome to Stage, the Streaming Age podcast. Today we will be exploring the work of Chinese artist and filmmaker Yoshi Hua. Jesetri Nanano is her guest journalist and this is the very first commission produced for Stage, a new digital initiative by TVA21, Tizen Bornemisa Art Contemporary. You will notice that quite a few voices came together to make this show and this is exactly how we want to keep it, open and plural. This episode is a collaboration between Stage and the NTU Center for Contemporary Art Singapore. Remember to check out our platform on www.stage.tba21.org and if you like this episode, which we really hope you do, please subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Don't forget to share it with your friends and if you have a minute to spare, please do leave us a review. Without further ado, this is Stage. As I said before, the reality has been that environmental defenders have been victimized and have been ultimately murdered for their work. Clearly, the work of environmental defenders have always been dangerous. Uh, our very lives have always been intertwined with the bountiful land and environment that a mega biodiverse and natural resource-rich archipelago such as the Philippines has. And oftentimes, our lands and lives stand in opposition to powerful business interests. In July 2019, Conflict and Corruption Watchdog Global Witness released its annual report on the killings of land and environmental defenders around the world. The Philippines, an archipelago of more than 7,000 islands, was ranked the deadliest country in the world for those protecting the environment, with 30 people murdered in 2018 alone. In their struggle to protect the environment and their communities, green activists and defenders in this Southeast Asian country have faced a wide array of threats and harassment. Despite these dangers, their fight for environmental rights and justice burns brighter than ever. My name is Josette Trina Enano. I am an environment reporter from Manila, Philippines. In this podcast, we explore the state of environmental defenders in my country and paint a picture of what it means to stand up for the environment at a time of planetary and human rights crisis. With me today is Leon Dulce, the National Coordinator of Kalikasan People's Network for the Environment, a national environment campaign center coordinating mass campaigns with grassroots communities, such as indigenous peoples, farmers, and fisherfolk in the Philippines. Leon, can you share with us some of Kalikasan's work in monitoring attacks on environmental defenders in the Philippines? So, Kalikasan started recording environment-related killings in 2001. 
when a number of our anti-mining comrades in the island of Mindoro were murdered under the auspices of the government's uh, counterinsurgency program. So since then, uh, extrajudicial killings of environmental defenders and uh, other environment-related uh, human rights violations have uh, exponentially increased. No? Environmental defenders are tagged as uh, terrorists. We have been called anti-development. We have been called anti-government rabble-rousers who unnecessarily oppose quote-unquote development. What the military has consistently described as uh, vital installations, critical investments, uh, even in their official counterinsurgency program documents. So we thus uh, experienced the whole gamut of human rights abuses. No? Uh, ranges from threats and intimidation, physical assault, police brutality, uh, illegal detention and trumped-up charges, and ultimately murder. And the fact is there is zero accountability. Not a single case that we have monitored since 2001 has been sufficiently resolved. Uh, the best you get are cases where murder charges have been downgraded to homicide. This has created a climate of impunity where uh, even government workers engaged in environmental protection are easy targets for death squads and even bare-faced police, military, or paramilitary troopers. This really sounds very alarming. What are some of the numbers you have recorded since the start of the century? So from 2001 up to the present, we have recorded at least 271 cases of uh, environmental defenders murdered or killed. And this is uh, exponentially increasing, as I said before, over the past three administrations. From the administration of President Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, the rate of uh, average number of killings per year doubled into the next administration, the, uh, the administration of President Noynoy Aquino. And then this subsequently quadrupled going into the administration of uh, President Rodrigo Duterte. And we only started monitoring other forms of human rights violations during the term of uh, President Duterte, where we qualitatively noticed a spike in the various forms of human rights abuses suffered by environmental defenders uh, under this current dispensation. So at this point, we monitored almost 20,000 defenders suffering various scales and forms of human rights violations. So that ranges from uh, harassment, threats and intimidation, including death threats through text messages and social media down to the uh, actual attacks such as uh, illegal arrests, uh, physical assault, the trumped up charges, and then eventually the actual murder of environmental defenders. So this is increasing, especially since there are also growing forms of attacks becoming more institutionalized through different policies under the current dispensation. Wow, 20,000. That's such a huge and really disturbing number, considering that the present administration has only been in power in the past four years. Indeed, because um, uh, there has been an increase in wholesale human rights abuses against entire communities of, of defenders on the ground. As I said, the, the 
average number of killings per year quadrupled under Duterte compared to the previous uh, regime. Duterte introduced a deadly combination of populist demagoguery that included pronouncements uh, against large-scale mines and other environmental destructive projects. And now recently, we faced the passage of the anti-terrorism law, which legal luminaries have described as even worse than martial law. If it is already a running practice by state forces to attack environmental defenders, and they do so, you know, for 69% of the recorded deaths of environmental defenders under the current regime involve state forces. What more with this newly passed law that overbroadly defines terrorism, which can conveniently include environmental defenders, and it allows for the criminalization of free speech? The spaces to operate are clearly shrinking and the days are clearly growing darker. I want to step back a bit at this point and try to see this grim state of our defenders in a much bigger picture. Why do you think environmental defenders become targets of harassment, of threats, of murder? And why does this matter for a country like the Philippines, which is very rich in natural resources and biodiversity? Well, exactly the point that the Philippines is Uh, blessed with natural resources, it is strategically located in, in the Pacific region uh, where trade courses through. So it naturally becomes a target for big business interests and big business is uh, usually in cahoots with big government in the Philippines. So environmental defenders become targets because we are up against an economic order, a political order, where uh, resources are up for grabs at the cheapest, dirtiest cost, and business as usual at all costs is enforced by fascism. So it is in this economic framework that allows the unbridled extractivism and land and resource grabbing on one hand, and then the military suppression as a form of investment defense or investment guarantee on the other hand that is uh, pushing the or driving the increased human rights abuses against environmental defenders. And this kind of situation for environmental defenders is sadly not confined to the Philippines alone. On top of my mind, I'm thinking of Brazil, which is also considered as among the world's most dangerous places for those standing up for the environment. In fact, Brazil has occupied the first place in Global Witnesses' annual ranking of deadliest countries for environmental defenders since 2012, only for the Philippines to take this spot in 2018. How do you think our situation here compares to other countries where the risks for protectors are also very high? Do we have any similarities with them, if any? I think it's this trend of far-right militarism coupled with the realities of economic crisis, especially uh, with the advent of the COVID pandemic where these uh, global economies suddenly sundered and are desperately seeking economic recovery. It's this trend that drives the conflicts, the environmental conflicts across countries such as the Philippines and Brazil and other deadly hotspots for environmental defender killings in the world. Leon, you have been in this fight for over a decade now. Have you or any of your colleagues faced any threats yourself or felt that your life was in danger because of your work? The threats we faced as a national grassroots network is the whole gamut of threats that we discussed. We have been repeatedly labeled as anti-development and 
terrorist supporters by the government. We have uh, faced police brutality, such as violent dispersals of our protest actions throughout our lives. Our office has been constantly under surveillance by state authorities, then almost faced an actual police raid last year. Then recently, we got our office gates defaced with terror tagging posters just over a month and a half ago. Uh, but that's the experience of the National Campaign Center. Our local leaders and members spread across the islands of the Philippines have it even worse. They constantly get death threats. They eat death threats for breakfast every day. They get harassed by military and paramilitary troops routinely patrolling their communities. And they are regularly arrested and detained illegally for doing the work that they do. They get slapped with trumped-up lawsuits that really affect our capacity to work. It really saps our resources. And then working on the ground every day, standing up against large mines, plantations, and other destructive projects every day. They have been become primary targets of assassination. They have become targets of military bombardments and other com- combat operations. They have been targeted by deadly massacres. Uh, so this is the plight that our network faces on a daily basis. What do you think needs to be done to ensure the protection of environmental defenders like yourself? And most importantly, those in communities who do not have access to the same safety nets and security measures that those in bigger organizations have. I think the overarching solution to the situation faced by environmental defenders and the situation of the Philippine environment itself is to fight for more and more democracy. The greater spaces we have to demand for change, the greater spaces we have to push back against destructive, extractive projects, the better chances we have of being able to win a better world, to build a better and sustainable, more sustainable society as compared to the business as usual that we are facing right now. So the only solution that we defenders can do is to continue fighting for our rights, to broaden the networks and alliances that join us in this struggle, to spread the word to more and more people, to realize the importance of the work of environmental defenders, even up to the level of uh, to the international community, to realize how critical it is to be an environmental defender in a mega biodiverse country, in a crucial front line for environmental and ecological and climate justice. So I think a crucial step would be to push for a law that recognizes the rights and the importance of environmental defenders, a law that protects defenders, uh, which is basically every citizen that works for the realization of our right to a balanced and helpful ecology to be protected from reprisals, from attacks, uh, upholding our constitutional rights to a balanced and healthful ecology. And on the other side, to repeal such laws that are diametrically opposed to these aspirations for more democracy, for uh, human and uh, environmental rights as well. Leon, I want to ask, where do you and other environmental defenders draw the strength to continue with this very important yet increasingly dangerous advocacy? Well, I think practically speaking, we persist with our struggles despite the dangers because by not doing so, we are resigned to an even worse fate. 
while defending the environment can lead to uh, you know a, a quick snap of a finger and you're dead by not doing so you you suffer a slow and painful but sure death by hunger and disease mental and physical agony on a daily basis and then you suffer the we all collectively suffer the burden of leaving our future generations in the same fate that is why we fight we fight to take back the democracy we deserve to win spaces of relief and reform for our people for ourselves for the next generations whether it's small and temporary but at the very least it is a vision uh, a sliver of the future that we want to win no so this the unrelenting hope to win bigger victories later on in our lifetime is what drives us to stand our ground it, it's not a war of quick victory that environmental defenders can win overnight because we know we're up against you know big and powerful systems of oppression and suppression and exploitation in the world so it's it's easy to feel anger pain it's easy, it's easy to lose hope but the solution is just to rest to recover yourself and to pick yourself up and start all over again because at the end of the day if if you do not continue to hold on to the hope to the courage of your fellow defenders who know in their hearts that we are on the right side of history you will only become part of the problem so always become part of the solution it's it's allowed for activists to rest uh, but it is necessary for activists to continue carrying on the struggle no matter what happens no matter what the cost Ortega. I'm the eldest daughter of Doc Jerry Ortega. Um, Doc Jerry is from Palawan. Uh, Palawan is an island in the Philippines and it's actually known as the last frontier in the Philippines for its uh, rich biodiversity and because it's been really protected when it comes to by the local environmentalists there. So my dad um, he worked as a wildlife veterinarian in the Crocodile Farm Institute in Puerto Princesa. He's also worked as um, an environmentalist by uh, ABS-CBN Foundation. He worked in uh, ecotourism sites in Palawan to look for ways for how can we how can we look at, you know, um, making a livelihood and still being able to protect the environment. 
And I remember growing up, my dad would say, you know, it isn't it isn't just what we can develop that's important, but also what we can defend. It isn't just what we can build, but also what we can protect. And so that's something that he really stood by as an environmentalist. And he would say that he's been to a lot of different places in the world. And Palawan in the Philippines is still his favorite place, the most beautiful island in the world. That, that's what he would say. In 2011, um, my dad was uh, killed by a lone gunman when he was looking through a thrift store in Puerto Princesa. He was working for the ecotourism sites, but also every morning from Mondays through Saturdays, he would be a journalist, a radio broadcaster. And on his broadcast, he would discuss things like mining, um, but also he would talk about the anomalies in government, in particular the misuse of the money coming from the natural gas rig uh, in Palawan. And we believe that that's actually why he was killed. And so he was murdered in 2011, in January 24, 2011. Nearly 10 years ago, a gruesome murder in the Paradise Island of Palawan reverberated across the Philippines. Jerry Ortega, who was fondly called Doc Jerry, was killed at gunpoint at only 47 years old. He was an environmentalist and a journalist who spoke fiercely against mining in his island hometown, and a community organizer who rallied both simple folk and powerful people to protect the environment and its natural resources. With me now is Mika Ortega, Jerry's eldest daughter, who continues to bravely fight for justice for her father. Mika, I understand that this is still difficult, but can you take us back to the time when Doc Jerry was taken away? Yeah, um, so I was 22 when my dad was killed. Um, I was working in Manila. And I remember being away from my family then and needing to go home. It was actually the first night, the first night um, of the wake when we were there. I remember standing in the middle of the chapel, being surrounded by the people that I recognize from the communities that my dad helped. And we all had this moment when the community basically really surrounded me and, and hugged me and we all cried together. And that's really an immediate impact, I think. And so when, when he died, you know, something comes to mind, really. It's, um, I believe it's a, it's a passage from the Talmud or the Quran. And it says something like, he who takes a single life kills a world entire. And that was so true with my dad. You know, when, when he was killed, they didn't just kill my dad. They killed my mom's husband and my grandmother's son and the community's leader. 
and the radio broadcaster that a lot of people listen to in the morning. And so a lot of the versions of him also died with him. It's an entire world. In the middle of the wake, just within the week, uh, I think three days after he was murdered, um, Gina Lopez, who would later become the secretary for the Department of Environment and Natural Resources in the Philippines, Gina Lopez went to Palawan and launched um, a campaign to stop mining in Palawan. That was three days after he had died. And then um, towards the end of the week, when we would lay him to his final resting place, there was really a really a big convoy of people. A lot of people really paid respects. It was it almost felt like a it almost felt like a rally because of how many people really showed up. Of course, we know now the Philippines is among the most dangerous countries for environmental defenders in the world. It is also among the deadliest for journalists, and your dad was both. Were there any threats to his life before the murder, and how did he react to them? And in the 10 years since he was killed, how has been your and your family's struggle for justice? I was in college, actually. A few years before my dad was killed, um, when when someone else was killed, a family friend who was a radio broadcaster. After he was killed, everybody looked at my dad as the possible next target. And, and that been in our minds for years before he was killed. Because he was brave, because he wasn't afraid to shed light and shame the devil, and speak truth to power. He wasn't afraid to share his emotion as to why we should be angry when it comes to corruption, why we should be angry when it comes to abuse, you know, why we should fight back and, and, and you know, and, and show that we don't agree with what was happening. And he was that voice. And so when he started receiving the threats, he took it seriously, but not to the point where he thought that they would actually go through with it. You know, and that's such a huge thing. He was such a trusting person. He was this person who was able to broker coalitions and collaborations. He was a person who was able to go between talking with politicians so that he could get the policies that he needs, but also speaking with local NGOs so that, you know, there's a lot of groundwork and grassroots work that's happening. He was that kind of person who has this special talent of, of going between different groups and being liked by people generally. And so I, I, he, because of that, you know, one of the things that he needed in order to do that was to be able to trust people. And he was such a trusting person that I used to catch him before. He would say, oh, they will never do that. They, they just want to scare me. They just want to silence me, but they're never going to follow through with it. And this was at a time when we were hearing a lot of news of radio broadcasters getting killed one a week in provinces. And so we were really growing more and more scared for him. When he was killed, suddenly we were thrown into this world of groups and families all looking for justice. And suddenly we had to meet widows and daughters and sons and widowers of environmental defenders or journalists who were slain or anti-corruption advocates who were killed. And it was such a weird world to be in. I remember uh, there were moments when, when I needed comfort and when I needed strength, I would get it from people who also lost someone. I would get it from the widows of the Maguindanao Massacre, for example, or I would get it from Dom An Makagne, who is the widow of an environmental defender also. Um, he was killed because he stood up against an, a massive dam that was being built in their mountain. 
And, and these are the types of people that you start to meet. And one of the things that you see when you start to meet more and more people who haven't received justice is how long everyone's been waiting for it. That I was there, I was 22, and I started meeting people who've been waiting for justice for five years or 10 years. And I remember thinking, wow, I don't, I don't want to experience that. I, don't, I want justice immediately for my dad. And, and, that, and my dad was killed in 2011. So it's almost 10 years now. And, and that's how long it's been. And, and even then, when you look at it from that lens, you say, okay, that takes so long. But, but we've been able to convict two people already. In, in the Philippines, you know, when you look at the numbers, when you look at how fast people are being able to convict, our case is already one of the fastest ones. And it's 10 years and we still haven't been able to convict the mastermind. One of the main drivers for us when dad was killed, why, why would we fight for this? Why would we choose to hash it out in the courts? And why would we choose to pause our lives for a few years so that we can ask for help from everybody and create these kinds of networks and coalitions so that we can fight for my dad? The main goal for us and the main driving force for us was because we refused for his death to be the end of it, that it's not the end of the story, that they did not win, that his life and his death had meaning because we made sure it had meaning. And the only way we define justice isn't so much that we put people behind bars, that's a bare minimum. Justice is when we've changed enough that this doesn't happen anymore. And, and clearly in the Philippines, we haven't reached that yet. You know, one of, the things I asked my mom recently, what would dad do if he was still alive, you know, in this time now in the Philippines with this government, in this climate, what would he do? And my mom said he would die again. And I think for me personally, until we reach a point in the future that it's a place and a country and a province that's safe enough for a Jerry Ortega to survive, then we wouldn't have gotten justice yet. And we work hard for that space. And that goes beyond my dad's case. That means really working hard every day with whatever we can, wherever we are. In the years following your father's death, hundreds more environmental defenders like him have been slain, and thousands more have faced harassment. You have been in this struggle for nearly a decade now, and as you said, you have heard the multitude of stories of the families and loved ones, of those taken away because they stood up to protect the planet. Why do you think threats to environmental defenders still persist, and can we do anything to protect them? There was one thing, there was one thing that um, Dr. Tony Lavinia said. Um, he was talking about the environmental situation in the Philippines. And I remember him saying, we need to fight for environmental defenders, for truth tellers, for people who are dissenting, because we need them. We, need, we always need their voices. I think one of the things that we would see is the more these voices, these brave voices are snuffed out, there is a chilling effect. People are more afraid to speak out and their voices are gone because these are people who would represent their voices, would articulate their feelings and their concerns, right? And you always need those kinds of voices. So that's important. One of the things that we look at really is impunity. And that's a word that 
gets thrown around a lot. But really all it means is that when you do something bad, you don't get punished for it. And that sends a strong message to people. It sends a strong message to would-be murderers. I can get away with it so I can murder someone. But it also sends a message to the civil society, to the citizens, that I shouldn't speak out. Why? Because if they kill me, they're not even going to find the person who killed me. Right? I think fighting for justice, there's really the fight for accountability that we need to make sure the guilty are made to pay. And that sends a very clear message to people. But also, you know what? Uh, That we don't leave the voices like my dad alone when they're still alive. That we start defending them when they're still there. When we start to see voices, strong voices, courageous voices defending us and speaking on our behalf, we need to also lend our voices to. It's a difficult thing to ask for, honestly, right now in these days. But we have to look for a way, a way, a way to fight back. I don't know, honestly, what the solutions are. I don't know. I think I think part of the struggle is really that it is a struggle and that we have to keep showing up every day. Mika, how do you think generations after your father's, and even after yours, can keep the flame burning for environmental justice in the Philippines, particularly when it feels more and more elusive these days? It's been happening for years, this culture of death. I think when you look at the environment, when you look at environmentalism, the very essence of it really is fighting for life. The very essence of it is, is, is fighting for all forms of life. And it's a counter-narrative, isn't it? To fight for a culture of life instead. And I think that's important. That's the first one. The second one, I know that it's hard and it's always going to be hard. And this is something that I personally need to be reminded of every day. But I remember one time when I was in high school and my dad was fighting for something. He was fighting against corruption and potential anomalies with the funds in Palawan. And I remember that the radio commentator asked him, why do you fight this? You're alone in this. You have no one else with you. You're the lone voice. And I remember him saying, I liken myself to a single flame of a candle in a corner of a room. And I know I can't give light to the entire room, but I can give light to that corner. And that corner is worth fighting for. And I remember that thing always, all the time. Yeah, uh, we need to fight for, yeah, we need to fight to win. We need to fight with very clear goals and very clear milestones, right? We need to be practical about the way we approach things. But the end of it, at the very core of it, you fight because it's the right thing to do. It's not easy. I don't think it's going to get easier, but that's the only choice we have. This episode accompanies the short film entitled Invocation to the Earth, written and directed by filmmaker Yo Siu Wa, which features incantations and dance as an offering and a resurrection of fallen environmental defenders in Southeast Asia, in the hopes that their brave spirits may repossess us. I am Josette Trina Enano. Thank you for listening. 
Stage, the Streaming Age podcast was brought to you by Thyssen Bornemisa Art Contemporary. This was a co-commission between Stage and the NTU Center for Contemporary Art Singapore. Special thanks to Ute Metebawa and Anna Lovecchio, and remember to visit our website to experience Yoshihua's work on www.stage.tba21.org. If you enjoy listening and want to stay up to date with future episodes, please do subscribe to our podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever platform you use. Reviews and shares are always deeply appreciated. Today's artist was Yoshihua. The interviews were conducted by Jesse Trina Nano. The editor-in-chief of Stage is Francesca Thyssen-Bornemisa. Carlos Urroz is the director of Thyssen-Bornemisa Art Contemporary. Soledad Gutierrez-Rodriguez is our content curator. Our producers are Soledad and myself, Igor Ramirez García Peralta. Ina Speranda and Gidra Bellodova are our project managers. Elena Utrilla is our production assistant. This episode was edited by Anna Esteban. And our theme music is by Carl Michael von Hauswolf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>